It's all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today the topic is inflation and the Fed. Uh, we just got the reports here this past week. Uh, CPI, Consumer Price Index, came out for September, and the PPI, Producer Price Index, came out for September. You need to look at both of them because the PPI feeds into the CPI. In other words, PPI is the rising costs for businesses, and particularly those businesses that are monopolistic. In other words, there's just a few players in the industry, you know, like uh, uh, meat production, processed foods, bakery goods, and so forth. They can just pass it on. So PPI is important, and it bleeds into CPI, Consumer Price Index. Now, there's two kinds of consumer price in indices that you got to keep in mind. Uh, one is called the CPI for all urban, CPIU, and the other is uh, CPIW, just for wage earners. It's interesting that the CPI for wage earners is always higher <laughs> than the CPI just for everybody. Uh, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, by the way, is uh, an index of the cost of living. In other words, uh, uh, what it costs to, uh, you know, pay for the 450 um, basic goods that everyone buys. Uh, so it's not just a, a price index, it's a cost of living index, but the one that affects us most uh, you see, there's a third price index called the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures, that the Fed uses, which is always lower because there's a lot more items. There's millions of items that go into the PCE, but there's only 450 that, what, 98% of all our purchases are CPI. So, you know, it's best to look at the CPI, but the one you get reported is the CPIU, which is a little bit lower than the CPI for wage earners. So if you're a wage earner, you know your cost of living is higher. Uh, but even both of those, the CPIU, CPIW, I believe, are underestimated. Uh, this has to do with different methodologies that are used. Uh, I'm not going to go into all those methodologies by the Labor Department. Bureau of Labor Statistics, by the way. But I think uh, you could probably add 2% more uh, on top of uh, what's reported as the CPI. The other thing to remember is both the CPI, U, and W uh, for September, for example, is not the whole month of September. It's for the first uh, two and a half weeks. In other words, they cut it off. It goes from the middle of August to the middle of September. Keep in mind, given that, that the gasoline bubble that went off here again at the end of September is not in these numbers, these latest numbers for September. Uh, it would be even higher, officially, if it went through the end of September. Okay, these are little technicalities, but you know, they're kind of important. Uh, 
because together they sort of dampen down what gets reported. And what you read in the papers in here is the CPIU, not the higher CPIU for September. Well, it came out uh, 8.2, 8.2 percent increase year over year, over 12 months compared to a year earlier. You know, you could look month to month, you could look quarter to quarter, uh, but what gets reported is year to year. Okay, so 8.2% uh, higher than it was last September 2021, which, by the way, was a big increase because you remember what happened, uh, you know, last uh, 2021, August, September, and even October, was we had all this supply chain problem. And uh, goods, imported goods in particular, uh, and domestic goods, um, the prices really, really escalated. So this 8.2 is on top of an escalation last year. Now, the 8.2% just reported for late August through mid-September uh, compares to a prior month of 83 in other words, no change. There's no change uh, in inflation. It is still pretty hot, right? Keep in mind, it's at least 10% in reality. But, you know, the important thing is there's, there's, there's not much change going on from month to month. Uh, and you could say the same thing uh, uh, for July, it's uh, you know still in the eight to nine percent range. Now it has come down from the second quarter of this year. Second quarter of this year was was even higher uh, rate. I think it was around no, I'm not sure 10, 11 percent, right? So we're down to eight, eight and five, eight three uh, percent. So it's come down a little bit. Uh, the big surge in the second quarter was because the economy was opening up for the first time after the COVID thing, uh, and really opening up. It tried to open up uh, uh, in the summer of 2021, but uh, didn't didn't work too well. Uh, we had another surge, if you remember, of the Omicron. Uh, but it really opened up in the second quarter of this year. People went back to work. And uh, businesses resume, particularly services, which is 80 percent of the economy. Uh, the services resumed. And of course, you had with people going back to work, you had more spending power, and you had some demand inflation. Uh, think of supply and demand when you're considering inflation. An increase in demand drives up the price. A decrease in supply will also drive up the price. So, you know, you got to look at those two forces, supply and demand. Okay. Now, the problem in the second quarter was a big surge in demand and a surge in supply decline, right? A negative surge in supply. Why was that? Well, that had to do with the sanctions starting to take effect. Uh, I'm talking about the Biden sanctions on Russia and uh, Russia's uh, providing uh, the world with a lot of oil, 
a lot of natural gas, particularly Europe, uh, and also industrial and agricultural commodities. Russia is a big exporter of certain industrial metals, like nickel that's needed for batteries in autos, etc. cetera. Uh, and, um, you know, other, other metals, aluminum and palladium for catalytic converters and so forth, see. Uh, so the sanctions on Russia cause a decrease in supply which drove up prices. So in the spring, we had this big surge in demand-driven inflation as well as supply-driven inflation, supply forces, right? Uh, and uh, not just the sanctions and the war. Um, you know, for a while there, it looked like there was no wheat and no, 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 uh, well, what is it called? Safflower oil? I forget the name of the of the thing that uh, Russia produces a lot and fertilizers, right? <clears throat> you need fertilizers to grow food. A lot of it, potash fertilizer, comes out of uh, Russia. Uh, so we had a supply problem, big time in the spring, and we had a demand problem, big time in the spring. We also had the beginning of the Federal Reserve jacking up interest rates. First uh, quarter percent, then, 50, then 75, and it's been going 75 every meeting. Uh, 75 basis points, as they call it, which is three quarters of 1% hike in rates. You know, when they say basis points, uh, they talk about 50, 75, 100, and that, that's a fraction of a 1% hike in the rates. Uh, so that hike in the rates that's been escalating, historic rapid big increase in rates, which has caused another problems we'll talk about, uh, did have the effect of dampening some demand-driven inflation. But, you know, people had put off spending so much during COVID, and now they had wages because they went back to work. Uh, pretty hard for interest rates to uh, dampen much of that surge, that demand surge. But it, it had a little bit of effect. How much? Well, you know, we were running double, low double digits in the, in the second quarter, and now it's down to the eight to nine percent, eight and a half, eight point seven percent range. So, uh, the point here is that interest rate hikes will take uh, some of the wind out of demand-driven inflation. It didn't do much because we were just opening the economy in spring, uh, but it has a, a li has had a little effect, and I emphasize a little, you know, one to two percent maybe, uh, here in the third quarter, July, August, September. Uh, so we're beginning, but just beginning, early stage of seeing uh, Fed interest rate policy uh, having an effect of dampening some of the inflation. But the point I really want to make about inflation, before we get into some of the examples here in this latest report, is um, it's both demand and supply driven, but it's mostly still supply driven, I think. And keep in mind, when the Fed raises interest rates, it can only address the demand side 
of inflation. It has no effect whatsoever on the supply side of inflation. And if the supply side is still the majority of the cause of inflation, guess what? The Fed rate hikes are going to slow some of the demand side, but not very much. Only until the Fed rate hikes continue to a point where it starts causing mass unemployment will you have the result of, of uh, income to buy things, demand, uh, contracting to a point that consumers, households will stop buying. But that can be offset by consumers, you know, if they're laid off, they don't have money. Uh, lots of easy credit, still credit cards and so forth, people offset uh, that with their credit card purchases, which are at record now, once again, um, the Fed can only have an effect on demand, and then it has to really precipitate a collapse in wage income in order to have that effect. It's not there yet, you know? And so it's been dampening inflation only a little bit with these record rate increases. You know, we're already at the base benchmark rate, as it's called for the Fed, at around uh, uh, what, 3, 3.75 or something like that percent, right? And the Fed's going to raise rates again in a couple of weeks, November 1st, uh, 75 points once again. So now we're up to, you know, close to uh, 4.5%. Now, I've been predicting for a year that if the Fed pushes rates to 45 to 5%, especially over five or more in early 2023, that will precipitate uh, a deeper recession than we're already in. You know, we're, we're just entering the recession, uh, but it will really uh, dampen the uh, growth and we will have a deep recession. And a deep recession uh, means not only the real economy uh, collapses, uh, but it raises the specter of a financial crisis on top of it all. Okay, that's uh, only the very early indicators of that financial system fracture cracking uh, is occurring right now. Uh, you can look at certain candidates to precipitate the financial crisis. I see them mostly in Europe right now, in UK, um, in Britain, you know, in its pension funds and other financial institutions. Pension funds are financial institutions first and foremost. Uh, and then the big bank Credit Suisse uh, in Europe in trouble probably next uh, either uh, Italian banks or Greek banks or maybe even the French bank Societe Generale or maybe even Deutsche Bank, I don't know. Okay, so the banking system in Europe is uh, the weakest in the world and uh, that could be the locus of uh, the next financial crisis. But we're not there yet. It's not around the corner. They're just early indications of the financial system being stressed by the interest rate hikes of the Fed because 
If the Fed hikes, uh, the other countries in the world have to hike their interest rates as well. And they're doing it. Uh, the Fed is kind of the central bank of central banks now. The empire, U.S. economic empire, has certain institutions that it dominates, that it uses to dominate. What are those institutions? Uh, well, the dollar is the central institution. It's the linchpin. International payment system, SWIFT, you know, related to the dollar. Uh, the IMF, which is there to rescue uh, countries whose currencies collapse, and many of them are collapsing. Uh, and the World Bank, uh, which uh, uh, controls investment uh, uh, subsidies uh, into the rest of the world. The U.S. controls both of those institutions and, of course, the SWIFT system and, of course, uh, the U.S. dollar. Those are the, the four legs of the U.S. economic empire, right? Uh, so when the Fed raises rates, the, other world, the rest of the world has to go along and raise rates as well. Uh, if they don't, guess what happens? Uh, their currencies collapse even more than they have. You see, uh, when the Fed raises rates, it causes the dollar to appreciate in value. And because the dollar is the global trading reserve currency, the linchpin, uh, the exchange rates with other currencies cause these other currencies to collapse. The, dollar, the more the dollar rises, the more these other currencies uh, decline. So governments in these other countries, whether it be Europe or emerging markets, whatever, uh, they have to raise their interest rates in order to keep their currencies from collapsing as much, right? Uh, they could use their dollars to go into global money markets, foreign exchange markets, and buy up their currency, increase the demand for their currency, and therefore uh, put a floor under the collapse of their currency because of Fed rate hikes. They could do that, uh, but they kind of don't like to do that. They like to hold on to their currency in a crisis, especially dollars, because you see, if you want to buy oil or gas or energy or metals or other commodities, agriculture, wheat, you know, corn, soybeans, etc., they're all bought and sold in dollars. Ah, that's part of the empire, you see. Uh, yeah, so you got to have dollars to buy that if you're Argentina. You don't want to spend the reserves of dollars you have because if, if you run out, you won't be able to buy it at all, right? Imports for your people. Uh, so instead, you raise your interest rates to try to slow the outflow of money capital in your country uh, going to the U.S. to invest in rising U.S. treasuries and securities, see? So uh, that's the connection. That's how the global empire manipulates the other members uh, that are part of that empire. And if that other members, you know, get uppity and want to go in their own direction and don't want to follow the U.S. economically or politically, by the way, uh, well, then the empire 
gets pissed off and the empire starts putting the screws to them, uh, like it did with uh, uh, Venezuela and, gosh, scores of other countries before. Uh, and, you know, it imposes sanctions and tries to squeeze those countries, the dollars out of those countries so they can't buy uh, needed uh, uh, critical imports, right, drive up their inflation rate and so forth, right? That's how the U.S. Uh, enforces, enforces economic compliance with the rest of the world. Well, Venezuela tried to go their own way, right, and... Uh, the U.S. Uh, came down on them and squeezed their dollars out of there and caused inflation and so forth. Um, it always does this economic uh, aggression uh, before it resorts to last resort political aggression, invasions and so forth, right? Financing uh, uh, capitalists to overthrow uh, democratic elected governments, etc. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll return to this whole, you know, U.S. economic imperialism, financial imperialism in particular, and how that's destabilizing the world. But let's get back to inflation and the recent report here. One thing we can conclude from inflation is that it seems to be now concentrated, right, in uh, uh, four areas four sectors of the U.S. economy. Uh, one, obviously, is energy, right? And energy means not only gasoline at the pump, right, uh, but uh, home heating oil, which hasn't been an issue in the summer yet, but it will be in the winter, particularly in the north. Uh, and uh, uh, utilities, electricity and natural gas, right, uh, which are also going to go up <laughs> in, in the winter pretty soon. Right. So energy, you know, gas, heating, utilities. Uh, a second sector uh, appears. And I'm looking at the last three months of these reports, inflation reports. Uh, food. Food is uh, food. Inflation has been a chronic issue. Right. Particularly if you look at processed foods uh, and uh, meat, eggs, milk bakery products. Now, those are all pretty pretty much staples, aren't they? Well, particularly processed foods, that's been going up pretty significantly. Uh, why is that? Well, part of it is domestic supply chain costs, transport costs have been going up. Uh, but also part of it is monopolistic corporations that dominate, a few of them dominate these sectors. Processed foods, bakery goods, right? Look at bakery goods. What do you got there? You got three or four companies, right? Who've been using uh, the general uh, popular awareness of rising prices to raise their prices even more because they can, right? Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, meat packers, right? Meat prices. Uh, chicken prices, right, and related eggs and milk prices, they've all been going up. All of those have been going up. So food and energy have been real culprits here, right? Now, the, the CPI index uh, distinguishes between what it calls um, headline inflation, 
which includes food and energy, and what it what it calls core inflation, uh, which uh, uh, you know represents a subsection of headline called uh, minus uh, energy and food prices, right? Core. The problem is core has been rising even faster than headline. Because headline, uh, we've seen some volatility here in gasoline prices. Remember, early in, earlier in the summer, gas prices shot up. Yeah, they hit $7 a gallon out here in California. Uh, and then they abated some a uh, month or two. Why did they abate uh, in the slow down, uh, uh, because Congress uh, started calling in these uh, oil company heads and grilling them. Uh, so what they do is they slow down, right, uh, the increase. But once uh, those congressional appearances were over and it looked like Congress wasn't going to do anything, uh, then the prices started jacking up again, right, gasoline prices. And that's been in the last month. Okay, and as I said earlier, that was not picked up by this latest September CPI. It will be picked up in the next one. How did they jack up the prices? Well, they do what they often do in the U.S., and that is they simply shut down their refineries. You know, you can have a decline in global crude oil prices, which happened you know, they went from uh, earlier in the year, they went for uh, crude oil per barrel, went from over $100 a barrel uh, down to, to the 75 range, right? Uh, and uh, that gave us that uh, little bit of a respite in gasoline prices in the summer here. Uh, but now they're back up to $90 a barrel because the response of the U.S. oil companies was even though global prices of crude were down per barrel, uh, you got to refine that before you can sell it as gasoline and home heating oil. So uh, they shut down their refineries here at the end of the summer. Oh, they say, oh, we need maintenance. Uh, you know, or, oh, we have a big fire, and they get a little fire, and they shut down the whole damn refinery, right? Uh, and that causes a supply problem of gasoline. Right, they engineer because they can. They are monopolies. Yeah, there's only a handful of them. They're monopolistic, right? And they can manipulate the price, and the price of not just crude, but the price of uh, refined oil. And then, of course, you know, you can manipulate the cost of uh, transporting it, and then you can manipulate the price at the pump. Right. So, you know, there's a chain here of uh, uh, gasoline, uh, and at each point in the chain, uh, you know, if you can control the price through supply or other ways, you, you just jack up the price and add some to it. For example, if the refineries raise their price because they're not pumping as much or refining as much, and they send it to uh, their uh, – or independent stations, gasoline stations, right? Oh, okay, so they got a 10% increase from the refineries. Uh, what they do is just, okay, 10%, we'll add another 2 3%, right? Uh, and, and that's the way all along the chain, the price gets boosted each time, you know, each at each stage. Uh, 
But boy, it doesn't come down the same way. It goes up the same way. It goes up that way, but it doesn't come down that same way. Uh, okay, so um, I guess the point I'm making is that the gasoline prices here came down a little bit. You know, remember, there's four big areas of inflation in the CPI, food, energy, shelter, and transport, right? And uh, the energy prices came down a little bit because of the politics, uh, but they've gone back up because of the refinery maneuver by the big oil companies. Uh, and they're going to go, uh, energy is going to go up even further now. Not only that gasoline has recovered its price, it's over $7 a gallon in California again, uh, but now uh, the home heating oil and the natural gas uh, prices are going to go through the roof starting in a week or two. Yeah, for the winter. Yeah, we're going to have a big, you're going to be shocked. If you heat your home with natural gas, you're going to be shocked how much more you're going to pay. Right? Uh, and the same in the Northeast, they rely a lot on home heating oil instead of natural gas. They're, they're going to be shocked, too. Uh, and gasoline, you know, might come down a little bit here. Uh, I think we've seen uh, the, the worst of the surge in gasoline. It won't come down much. It'll stay, you know, pretty high over the winter here. But the, the other forms of fuel and energy are going to go through the roof, right? Uh so this 8.2, 8.3%, you know, the, the mix, the cause within it is just going to shift, you know, from gasoline to natural gas and home heating oil, electricity, right? Uh, and then, of course, uh, the food. Uh, the food, as I said, the monopolistic uh, corporations are price gouging. Uh, that's going to continue chronically. And now in this last report, we also see, this last CPI report, we see a big increase in shelter costs, that sector. Shelter uh, is uh, people who have variable rate mortgages. Yeah, they're going up, boy, you know. Your variable rate is probably 6 7% now. Uh, and if you buy a house at a new rate, it's 6 to 7%, but that's going up. Uh, even more. Uh, rents are going up significantly. And uh, th that has a lot to do uh, not with, uh, I'm talking about apartments, not single home rents. It's apartment rents. Although, you know, single home rents go up because rents follow uh, uh, the, the uh, mortgage rates. Rent costs follow follows the housing financing rate. So as that goes up and up, uh, rents go up too. But there's also supply issues and demand issues involved. Uh, so rents are going going up. Uh, I've seen some people, some analysts say that this 8.2%, half of it is shelter costs. I haven't looked at that myself, but half shelter, rents, mortgage rates, right? That's, that's really significant, I think. And then, of course, we have the transport, the cost of moving this stuff uh, going up. Why? Well, trucks, you know, the truckers have to uh, pay the higher gas prices, right? 
uh, and diesel prices. So they just tack on that cost into, uh, you know, their their charges, their fees. Right? Airlines, well, we know those guys are price gouging the hell out of everything because people are traveling, and we got holidays coming up. They're going to travel more, so here goes airline costs going up this winter, and railroads who also need fuel. They run on diesel and other fuels, right? Uh, and by the way, they've been raising their prices, and the railroad companies have been, you know, garnering super profits here. But we got the workers, the unions, the 12 unions negotiating with them now. And only four of those 12 unions have agreed. Uh, the other eight may go on strike. And then, of course, the costs of rail transportation are going to go up. So transport prices are going to continue going up. Shelter prices are going to continue going up. Some elements of energy will go up. And food will continue to go up because a lot of it, like processed food, uh, uses a lot of uh, energy uh, to process the foods, okay? So I don't see inflation uh, being shaken out much by the Fed rate hikes. Again, the Fed can only address demand-side inflation, and think about it, how much will rate hikes slow down food, energy, shelter, and transport prices. Mm. Some, but not all that much, in my opinion. We have a, an official 8 to 9% inflation rate. I think when the recession deepens and mass layoffs occur, which are coming, uh, demand inflation will dampen, it will slow, but if supply-side inflation is over half of current inflation, you're not going to get that 8 to 9% current CPI rate down much below 5 to 6%. We're going to have a deep recession in 2023, uh, and we're going to have still chronic inflation of 4 to 5%. We've never had that before. It'll become clear that the Fed, the Fed's policy solution doesn't work. It only works weekly, you know, and and temporarily and tepidly. Right? It, they'll never get back the Fed to their 2% inflation goal. That's gone for quite some time, in my opinion, right? As long as supply-side inflation continues, as long as we don't do something about the corporate price gougers, mm -hmm, uh, as long as the supply chains uh, are in turmoil, some of them have been resolved, but some of them still aren't. And those supply chains are being wrecked uh, by the U.S. sanctions, global sanctions policy. Right, the U.S. policy is is really destabilizing its own global economic system. Politics, the objectives of the Biden administration have trumped economics. That's what this war is all about. As I Ukraine, when I wrote 
even before the war began in January, was the U.S. policy now with Biden and the traditional capitalist establishment back in the driver's seat. You know, Trump was an aberration. Things got put, uh, uh, you know, their policy, strategies, objectives, there, meaning the capitalists, uh, got put on uh, the shelf for a while. But as soon as Biden came back in, boy, they pulled their plans from 14, 2014, 15, 16 uh, off, the t- off the shelf, and they started implementing them. And one of those plans was to go after Russia, to, one, drive Russia out of Western Europe, not just energy and oil and gas, because Europe came to depend on Russian oil and gas, particularly Germany. You know, 40, 45% of its energy came from Russia. Well, the U.S. didn't want that. Uh, U.S. imperialists, because they knew, you know, economics is the, you know, the the front line of, uh, of empire, right? And if the Europeans became permanently and even further dependent on Russian energy and Russian commodities, by the way, and Russian uh, 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 agriculture, right? Uh, then Russia would be eventually be able to pull uh, Western Europe uh, into its sphere of influence away from the U.S. And we are already seeing that happening uh, under Trump, right? Uh, NATO was... France and Germany were thinking about going more independent. NATO, not so dependent on the U.S., have their own military and so forth, right? <clears throat> but that was put to bed uh, with the policy of U.S. and Biden of let's precipitate a crisis in the Ukraine targeting Russia and use that crisis as a way for the U.S. to reestablish its hegemony over NATO. You know, uh, the policy of the U.S. was uh, let's block with the U.K., which is really rabid anti-Russia, and the Eastern Europeans, the Baltics, the Poles, and so forth, which are anti-Russia, right, and dominate U.S. hegemony, reestablishes dominance over NATO. And the war allowed it to achieve that, you see. NATO is firmly in the U.S., uh, a back pocket now, uh, and it really controls what's going on once again, as it had in the past. Right? The other main objective was to drive Russia out of Western Europe economically, not just oil and energy with the Nord Stream pipelines, right? Yeah, not just that, uh, but all the other economies, industries as well. And that's been happening. And guess what? U.S. corporations fill that vacuum, which they've been doing it. You can see it with the natural gas, right? The U.S. is uh, sending its fleet of liquid natural gas tankers, you know, Russian tankers, uh, with U.S. natural gas to Europe, right? Uh, as, as Europe runs out in the winter, Right, which, by the way, is going to cause a shortage of natural gas and justify uh, price increases here, big time that I talked about. Right, but the U.S. is supplying natural gas to Europe, but at four times the price that the Russians were. Drive the Russians out of Western Europe, and boy, there's big profits to be made, and the U.S. knew this, and that was ultimately part 
of its plan here uh, to go after Russia, which, by the way, was outlined back in 2015-16 by the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation advised the U.S. to do just that, to go after Russia first, neutralize Russia, drive it out of uh, Europe, neutralize its, its economic and uh, military power, uh, and uh, then go after China after that, because China's the bigger nut to crack, you see. So, you know, this policy was, was uh, developed back in 2015-16. And in the intervening years, the U.S. deepened its economic influence uh, and control. U.S. corporations went in, bought up uh, Ukrainian corporations and businesses. U.S. military went in, you know, started training the uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainians, right? This is 2014, 15, 16, right? Uh, they, they signed a, a, what was called a treaty because the war had erupted in, in the Donbass early in 1516. Uh, Russia came in. Uh, and they signed, uh, and Russia was getting the upper hand back then, so uh, the U.S. and Ukrainians agreed to what was called the Minsk Treaty, when both sides would, would sit back and, and uh, armistice, in other words, fight. Uh, but the, the Ukrainians um, and the U.S. eventually uh, bought time with Minsk, didn't uh, adhere to the Minsk Treaty, and... Uh, Within a year or two, uh, the U.S. Uh, encouraged the Ukrainians to go and attack the Donbass because those were provinces, two provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, that uh, kind of broke away. Uh, and uh, when Biden came in, uh, the attack on those two provinces really intensified. Uh, I believe that uh, this is all part of a strategy by the U.S., which is firmly embedded in Ukraine now, and you'll never get it to leave. Uh, the best the Russians can hope for is to split the Ukraine and take the east and south. You know, they'll, they'll never be able to take the rest. Uh, and uh, I believe the U.S. Uh, adopted this as a conscious policy, you see. They, they, this was intended. This was what uh, I've been calling the Brzezinski 2.0 strategy. Who's Brzezinski? He was this NSA uh, advisor to uh, President Carter in 79. And in the summer of 79, Brzezinski went to Carter and uh, he said, uh, uh, let's destabilize Afghanistan and force the Russians to uh, come into Afghanistan. And then we will bleed them dry uh, by arming uh, the peasants, the Mujahideen, right, against the Russian uh, secular Afghan government at the time. In other words, Russia didn't enter Afghanistan until six months after the U.S. was destabilizing it in this Brzezinski document. It destabilized the uh, Najibullah, he was the leader of the Afghan secular revolution there in the late 70s, <clears throat> and the U.S. purposely destabilized that starting in July. And then the Russians came in on the invitation of Najibullah uh, to help them. And then, of course, we have the Afghan war, which bled the Russians economically, politically, uh, 
and militarily and contributed to the collapse of the USSR eventually. Okay. <clears throat> How do I know this? Uh, because Brzezinski uh, uh, admitted it in the late 90s in, in an interview at the end, toward the end of his life. He admitted that this is how it was done. This is how uh, the U.S. and Carter began the destabilization right, and sucked, sucked the Russians in. Uh, well, the same thing happened in Ukraine. You know, 2014, the U.S. engineers, a coup, yes, spent $5 billion uh, to uh, pull this coup off. You had a narrow victory for the pro-Russian president in 2013. <clears throat> Instead of uh, waiting for a runoff or some sort of resolution, uh, the U.S. Uh, used the fascist ground forces uh, you know, the right sector and other other parties there were very strong, and they had these street thugs who were fascists. You know, Western Ukraine has always been strong fascists. Even in World War II, the Western Ukrainians uh, formed a, 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 an SS division that fought on the side of uh, the Nazis, right? Bandera, who was one of the leaders there, the Stepan Bandera, and they, they worshiped Stepan Bandera there in Western Ukraine, right? Uh, and uh, Victoria Nuland, who was the Undersecretary of State for the U.S. and Eastern Europe, engineered uh, that support, spending $5 billion, she admitted it publicly, and uh, when the coup occurred, uh, she, she selected who the leaders would be uh, in, in the government. She admitted it. Uh, this is all public record, right? And after that, uh, in comes, uh, she then became the economic czar for Ukraine, appointed by the people she appointed the government, right? Uh, and uh, she opened the floodgates to U.S. Uh, investors, and on their heels comes the U.S. military. This has all occurred in 2014-15, you see. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Russia comes in on the side of Donbass in 15 and 16, but then agrees to this temporary truce called the Minsk Agreement. And uh, uh, it's uh, Ukraine's President Poroshenko admitted publicly that, oh, uh, we never intended to abide by the Minsk agreements here. That was just to buy time, right? Okay, so that's that's that history over there. But it's tied into the whole U.S. strategy uh, to drive Russia out of Western Europe to make Ukraine even more dependent economically, politically, militarily on the U.S., which it is now. It's almost like an economic colony of the U.S. Uh, and... Uh, to drive Russia out of Western Europe so American corporations could come into Europe and take up the vacuum and charge four times the price for natural gas. And, uh, you know, the Germans and the French are kind of complaining now, you know, they're just coming out, some of their ministers saying, hey, why are you gouging us, you know? Well, you just traded Europe uh, one dependency for another, and the another is the U.S., which is more costly. Okay, uh, back to inflation in the U.S. and the Fed we want to talk about. Uh, as I said, uh, we can conclude 
the following facts about inflation this summer, particularly in the last three months, right? First, it's chronic. It's not going away. It may dampen a little as you get in deeper recession, but it's not going away because the U.S. policy is sanctions and the, you know destabilizing uh, global supply chains and so forth is continuing. The supply side problems are not going away. Uh, so half of this inflation is going to be continue chronic. So. In short, we may see as the recession deepens, as Fed raises interest rates and precipitates a deeper recession, we may see some dampening on the demand side of this 8 to 10% inflation, right? But it's chronic. You remember last year when it started, uh, uh, or earlier this year when it started erupting inflation, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen said, oh, it's going to be temporary. Well, she had to eat those words in the spring. Because it's chronic now, and everyone agrees it's going to be chronic. Uh, over half of it is supply-side driven, over half of it, uh, which means the Fed is going to have no impact. Fed rates will have no impact. This is a political, geopolitical, and capitalist restructuring, industrial restructuring cause here. So the Fed, the third point, uh, First point, chronic. Second point, supply side, dominant. Third point, Fred, the Fred, Fed can't really dampen it too far. Uh, fourth point, you look at those four sectors where most of the prices increase. I don't see uh, how any of those are going to uh, dampen in the next three months, except for maybe gasoline. Uh, but that'll be more than offset by other energy prices. Right. Uh, also, it's clear that uh, the producer price index is going to keep feeding into the consumer price index and keep it chronically high. Producer price index is the price increases that businesses uh, have to absorb uh, before their products actually get to the market and are consumed by households. Well, if you look at producer prices over the last six months, you see the same phenomenon as consumer prices, but at a higher rate, right? Uh, look at the increases in April, May, June in producer prices. They are all over 11%, 11, 2, 11, 1, 11, 3, right? They've come down a little bit in the last three months to the uh, eight and a half to 10%. So there's been a little bit release of pressure on producer prices, but the producer prices are still higher than the consumer prices, which means a lot of this is gonna be passed on, this PPI increases by these monopolistic corporations that can pass it on. They're going to pass it on, okay? Uh, so PPI will keep feeding into CPI, right? Uh, and we're going to continue to have pressure on import inflation on the consumer price index. In other words, the price of imports coming into the U.S. Uh, will remain high because 
uh, other supply-side issues with sanctions and supply chains. That's going to keep it up. Now, to some extent, the rising value of the dollar dampens that import inflation. Because if the dollar buys more, uh, that in effect means that there's less demand uh, for imports because uh, less money demand because your dollar's worth so much. You know, but conversely, if other currencies collapse, that means their import inflation rises. And that's what's going on in Europe. You have an even bigger impact for energy prices in Europe, gas and oil. You know, that's obvious. Uh, but you also have import inflation because their currency has collapsed 20, 20%. So, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% uh, of the price hikes are because of higher import prices because of collapsing currencies. Well, as I said, the euro is down 22%. Uh, so energy and uh, uh, the U.S. Fed and rising dollar and falling euro are exacerbating European inflation even more uh, than U.S. inflation. Now, what happened in Britain is that the Brits here with this new uh, trust, her, her name is Truss, uh, as the PM prime minister there, uh, knows that they're in trouble. The British economy is the weak link in Europe right now. Uh, and uh, being the Republican, quote, conservatives that they, they are, right, uh, they propose to uh, uh, reduce taxes on the rich uh, in order to try to stimulate the economy. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're trying to rescue uh, the National Health Service, uh, which is really uh, under stress because of inflation. Uh, so, in other words, they wanted a, an expansionary fiscal policy, taxes and spending, right, to offset the impact of the current events on households and businesses. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, the central bank, Bank of England, is trying to raise interest rates to slow the economy. So they're trying to stimulate the economy with fiscal policy where the bank is raising uh, interest rates, right, to protect the value of the pound because British investors are losing 20, 30 percent of their asset value because of the collapse of their currency. You see, they don't like that. So the capitalists are pushing the central bank, raise rates, protect the pound against the dollar, right? Uh, and uh, of course, that slows the economy, uh, worsens the real economy condition for real people. So uh, the conservative politicians want to stay in power, so they're trying to stimulate the economy uh, and its real effects from rising interest. You, you see the contradiction here that going on in Britain? Yeah. Uh, and overlaid on that, you got the fact that as rates rise, it's beginning to stress the hell uh, out of financial markets. We see the pension funds in trouble, the weak link over there. And now derivatives associated with it, oh, derivatives and shadow banks. Shadow banks are pension funds, investment banks, private equity, hedge funds, and so forth. They're mostly unregulated, right? Unlike commercial banks like Barclays and Lloyd's, you know, in Britain. 
Yeah. Well, you know, over the last decade, uh, everybody has increased their debt load. The governments have, uh, corporations have, banks have, and households have, right? And now they're having a hard time paying the principal and interest on it when interest rates rise. See, that's a wild card overlaid on all of this, and that's happening everywhere. Uh, but in Britain, we see, uh, you know, the crisis at its peak here. And uh, when uh, the, the um, central bank, the head of central bank, a guy named Bailey, uh, told the pension funds, uh, you better do something about your debt. You got three days. <laughs> yeah, you got three days. Do something about your debt. Oh, the market's freaked out. The market's freaked out in, in the UK. Uh, and uh, that meant their currency collapsed even more. And uh, that meant that uh, the government had to, the trust government had to turn around its policy of fiscal stimulus. Now we're going to see fiscal austerity coming. Yeah. So big contradiction between fiscal and monetary policy, which reflects the crisis, the fundamental economic crisis going on uh, in the UK, uh, and it's going to get worse. Uh, the Conservative Party response has been, uh, oh, we'll, we'll play musical chairs and change the, the heads of our Treasury Secretary, they call it the Exchequer Chancellor, right? So they're firing these guys right and left, you know, <laughs> and changing changing heads, you know, Heads are rolling, but that doesn't do anything because you got to change the policy. But they got this big contradiction. You see, the capitalists want interest rate investors want interest rates up to protect their investments, the value of their investments. Uh, but that means even more economic stress for the rest of the people in the country. Uh, so it's a class thing. It's a it's a uh, intensification of a class contradiction and a class economic conflict here. Will the investors get their way through the central bank raising rates? Hmm? But again, the central rates, you know, the central bank rate hikes only partially mitigate the fact that the Federal Reserve Central Bank in the U.S. is driving that crisis too, causing a class of currency. You see the, the empire relationship here? Uh, you know, look, this is an interesting, you know, we're coming to the end here, but this is an interesting uh, comparison. Uh, in the 2008 crash, U.S. and global, uh, it, was, it wasn't just mortgage bonds, Lehman Brothers, right? Uh, and Lehman Brothers had a lot of cash on hand, and they said, oh, we got cash, we can handle it, right? Uh, but the value of their bonds, their mortgage bonds holding collapsed so far. They were in the red. Let them go. Yeah, but we got the same thing happening here.